Bibles, your copy of God's Word, and turn to John 17. And this morning we're going to be looking at John 17, verses 20 through 26 as we continue our study here in the Gospel of John. Um, we're going to pick back up where we left off last week in what I've called, and many others have called it to uh, the Lord's Prayer, and in fact the real Lord's Prayer, because he prays all this in the, in, in the presence of his disciples as they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And uh, some people call it Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, which is also a fitting title. Uh, I don't know how many people title their prayers, but we've titled many of Jesus' prayers here, and we've given the title, uh, and that's, some people call it that. But we've covered the first five verses, uh, Jesus prays for himself, and then verses 6 through 19, we saw last week, Jesus prays for the apostles, or the 11 disciples who were with him at that time, and this morning we're going to cover uh, verses 20 through 26, Jesus prays for the church. And uh, the title of this message this morning is, uh, falls right along with the last two. This is the Lord's Prayer, Part 3, uh, The Glory of God in the Church. And I want to read these verses for us before um, we look at them in detail. So if you have your Bibles, turn there again to chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, as Jesus prays for the church. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love me, even as you have loved me, have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so they may see my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, again come to this time on Sunday morning that we have together to look into your word and, Lord, better yet, allow your word to look into us and to change us and to help us be honest with ourselves. But Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need you uh, directing our lives through your word. So, Lord, we ask now as we examine these verses, these words that uh, Jesus prayed, Lord, that they would uh, pierce our hearts to the dividing of soul and spirit and change us, that we would not be the same when we leave here as when we came. And we trust you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a couple questions here this morning, or one big question, I guess. As someone that means a lot to you, that you respect greatly, uh, that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, have they ever prayed for you? And we probably would, most of us say, yeah, I can think of a time when somebody I respect greatly and you know, who loves the Lord and loves God um, has prayed for me. And obviously it means a lot, especially if that person is 
uh, a mature prayer warrior. You know, there's people probably in church, maybe you grew up, maybe you didn't grow up in a church, but maybe you know somebody who's a prayer, people call them a prayer warrior. Why? Because they're always praying. And you know when you ask them to pray, they're going to pray. And they're going to pray fervently with all that they are. And sometimes we'll ask them, hey, would you pray for me? And our response will be, yeah. And then we forget to pray for them, right? I'm not talking about those kind of people like me, right? I'm kidding. A lot of times what I'll do is somebody asks me to pray for them. Not all the time, but more, more often than not now, I just pray for them on the spot because I know I'll forget. But we're talking about someone who prays. They don't forget. They keep praying. They ask you every time they see you, hey, how's it going? You ask me to pray for this. I'm praying for that. And it means a lot. It brings comfort to you. It encourages you. Uh, in fact, yesterday, a man I respect greatly, I saw him. And um, before we left company, uh, he just reminded me that he prays for me every day. And that encouraged me. And every time I see him, he reminds me of that. And I know that he prays for me every single day. And I can't tell you what that means. And you have people probably in your life just like that, that you know that they pray for you. And it does bring comfort and encourages you. And, and, and the reason it encourages me is because I believe what James wrote in James 5, 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And this guy I'm talking about yesterday, this guy is a righteous man. He loves the Lord. The Lord lives in him. He's been given the righteousness of Christ in him. And he prays. And it accomplishes much. Well, as much encouragement and comfort I derive or have derived from prayer of other godly people, it pales in, it pales in comparison to the encouragement and the comfort I receive when I remember that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for me. We're talking about the Lord of all the earth, the creator of heaven and earth. He prays for me. Now, that's great encouragement. That's great comfort. That's great consolation to know that he prays for me. In fact, he, not only has he prayed for me, he continues to pray for me. Look what it says in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, speaking of Jesus, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, listen to this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus prays for his own. I'm sustained by his prayers for me. And if you're a believer here this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ, you are sustained by his prayers for you. Let me just ask you a question here. How many of his prayers do you think get answered just like he wants them? On a scale of 1 to 100%, how many? 100%. If you, ask, if you answered anything else, you flunked the course. All right? 100% every time he prays. He always prays according to the will of God, right? Because he is God. And his prayers are always answered just as he prays them. I don't know anyone else like that. And I'm thankful for everyone else's prayers for mine. I'm thankful the Holy Spirit helps us out when we pray. But his prayers are always answered just as he prays them. Consider what Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22, 31 through 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, as we know, on the night that he was betrayed, Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times. Jesus' prayer wasn't that he wouldn't deny him, but that his faith may not fail. 
And listen to what it says. Look what it says. It says, and when you have turned. Jesus knew that he was going to turn back. He knew that he would repent and come strengthen your brothers. And you know what we find happens in the book of Acts? You know what Peter's doing? He's strengthening his brothers. He's preaching the gospel. He's being used by the Lord Jesus Christ just as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for him. His faith did not fail. Did it falter? You bet, and so does ours. But it did not fail. I wonder why. You know why? Because Jesus prayed for him. And what Jesus prays always comes true. Always. Well, our passage this morning is about Jesus praying for all those who have trusted or believed on him as their Lord and Savior. That's what this passage is about. You don't have to go, okay, now, this was kind of for them, first of all, at this time when he wrote it or he said this, it's first of all for them, and then, now, we take the principles from that and we apply it to our life. You don't have to do that this morning. These words, exactly how they are prayed, are prayed for you right now, no translation. Because he's praying for the church. He's praying for you. That's good news. It helps me in my, uh, in my interpretation. It's not hard. That's what it says. That's what it means. Right? You don't have to have any background on it. You just understand that's what he's praying. Look with me in verse 20. It says, Jesus says, I do not ask. He's praying to the Father on behalf of these alone. Now, these alone, he's speaking to 11 disciples who are with him, who's he, who, whom he has just prayed for. They've been the subject of his prayer up to this point, these 11. And he says, I'm not just asking on, I do not ask on their behalf alone. Then the second half of verse 20 says, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Here Jesus prays for everyone who believe in him through the message that the original disciples passed on. Through their word. And this points to the fact, listen to this, that people will believe. I don't know how people get this from the Bible. I don't know what Bible they're reading. When they even think about, there's a possibility that when Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again three days and then ascended to the Father 50 days later, that there was a chance that people would not believe. Where do they get that? Not from this Bible. Look, it says... Those who will believe, he knows that people are going to believe. He's not dying in vain. He's not dying for a chance for people to believe. He's dying for people who will believe. You don't, you just, how, how do you get in there? He's not taking a chance. He's not a chance taker. He's God. Right? And yeah, people get that, but he said they will believe. And it shows that God's plan to rescue people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from all over the world will be accomplished. That's the story of the Bible, isn't it? God created everything. And man said it wasn't enough. We want to be like you. We want to be God. And they turned from him. And from that moment on in Genesis 3, he promised he would send someone who would crush out the power and the presence and the penalty of sin. And guess what the whole Bible is about? Genesis 3.15, coming true. And here we see it coming true right before our eyes. He says those who will believe, he knows will believe because he died for them. It wasn't by accident. This is just an introduction. I'm pretty excited this morning. You all tell that? I and mean, we're just getting going. And it's only going to get better. Uh, wait, uh, there's some points in here that, that cause me in some ways to pause in a passage of scripture that I haven't paused in a long time. Um, but this is his prayer for the church. 
And just, just I, I don't want to insult you and insult your intelligence, but I also don't want to think everybody understands when I say the word church what we're talking about. This is not the church. This, the, the ceiling tiles, and this building, and this, these chairs, it's not the church. You're the church. And we can be the church out there and any place else. In reality, do we ever go to church? Are we coming to church when we come here? Well, we're coming with the people, right? We're gonna, we're, we are the church. So if you'll notice, people get emails from me, listen to me talk, you schedule. I'll talk, it'll say, where? And I'll say, the church building. I'll never say the church. I don't meet at the church. I am the church. They think that's pretty legalistic. I'm trying to communicate something that we've gotten caught up into. This is the church. It's not. We're the church. So when he prays, he's praying for the church. Those who've repented and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the church. Now for a lot of you, that was not new information. But for some of you, maybe it was. And I'm so glad that this building's not the church because Jesus didn't die for a building. He died for the church, his bride. If you're here this morning and you've trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, then this prayer in these verses, verses 20 through 26, is something that he prayed for you. And that will encourage you before we even look at it. It should encourage you. So let's examine these verses, 20 through 26, uh, where he does pray for the church so that we will be comforted, we'll be consoled, we'll be encouraged, maybe we'll be challenged to live for his glory. And, and we're going to do that by examining this prayer for the church with, with three major emphases that uh, we'll see in this passage. And I'll give you the three right now if you're a note taker, if you like outlines, here's the outline. The request for unity. Secondly, the characteristics of that unity. And thirdly, the results of unity. So the request for unity, the char characteristics of that unity, and the results or result of unity. Let's begin examining the first major emphasis Jesus brings up is the request for unity. Look with me at the first part of verse 21 there in your Bibles with me. That they may all be one. Then again in verse 23, and the phrase, you can just kind of read, it's I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. This is the main request and the focus of Jesus' prayer for the church. If you could just sum it up, what did Jesus pray for the church? This is the answer. Unity. He prayed that they would be one. And let me say up front here, and we'll look at this in a second. This is not a superficial unity that is based on unimportant things. Like what city you live in. What state you're from. Even Kentucky. Alright? And if you're not, from, you're not here, I'm, that's where I'm from. And I love my state. But it has nothing to do with that kind of unity. Or your favorite food. Or your favorite sports team. That's not unity in the truest sense. And yet those are the things often we think we're unified about. And they ultimately make no difference at all in the long run. It goes way deeper than that. Which is why we're going to spend most of the rest of our time in the second part. The characteristics of unity. The characteristics of this unity he's praying for. He doesn't leave room for misunderstanding of what he means by that they may become one, that they may be perfected in unity. He, he, he instead describes it in his prayer. I love this. In fact, he gives us six characteristics, at least six characteristics, at least we're going to look at six this morning, of this unity that he prays for. Look at the first characteristic. You can, if you're a note taker, again, this is the first characteristic. It is based on truth. This unity... 
that he prays for is based on truth. Contrary to the belief of some, we do not lay aside truth so that we might have unity. Let me put it this way because people like to use this word and I'll explain this. We don't lay aside doctrine. It's an ugly word, isn't it? For unity. And the word doctrine just means teaching. A lot of people use the word and they think it means way more than it really does. It just means teaching. Teaching truth. All right? Truth teaching about who God is. We don't lay that aside and say we're now unified. In fact, you can't be unified if you lay that aside. That's how important it is. His unity is based on truth that he prays for. We see this in the last phrase of verse 20. Look there with me. He says, But for those who believe in me through their word. People are Christian, who are Christians have unity because they believe in the same truth. Do you see that? Through their word. Whose word? The apostles' word. That he passed on. He promised to pass on truth through the apostles. We saw that earlier in John. That he would teach them all things. And they would pass it on. And we have that here in the 27 books of the New Testament. That's the truth about who he is. What he did. And, and people believe and they're unified on what they believe about him and what he did. Yes, Christians have differences, obviously, on some of the things they believe. But not on the essentials. In fact, if you don't believe the essentials, you're not a Christian. So if you're not a Christian, you can't be unified. It's, listen, it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Any other way, you're not a Christian. There's no other way for someone to be saved, to be made right with God, except by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that was brought to us by a God who is Trinity. Those are essentials. And without their, that, those things, there's no unity. We share these things, not only with current Christians, that are gathered here, gathered all around the world, even this morning, today at some time, because there's different time zones. My brothers in Russia are nine hours ahead right now. And I've, I have to share these things with those brothers of mine in Russia right now. Not only just people who are living today, but all Christians of the past. We share this unity with them. That's why I love we still sing old hymns at Grace Bible Church. I think it connects us to the past. We need to find the oldest hymn we possibly can and sing that. Just to remind us we're connected to those people who wrote those love songs to God. Just like we are in the new songs that we sing. We're connected. We're unified. But without those things there's no unity. Those who do not hold to these essentials are not our brothers and sisters. And we don't want to put our arms around them and say, hey, we're all in this together because we're not. They need Christ. So what should we do instead of saying, let's just drop all truth, let's drop all doctrine, and put our arms together and come together for the betterment of the earth, the betterment of the world, the betterment of our country. What should we do? No, we should love them enough not to put our arms around and say, hey, I want you to know what God really did for you. I want you to know who God really is so that you won't continue to work to please him, which you'll never do. And you'll trust in the one and only one who did please him. His son who died for you. That's how we love people. Amen. But we're not unified. Well, not only is this unity based on truth, but secondly, it's a, uni it's a unity, not a uniformity. It's a unity, not a uniformity. Like, where we see that? Look at verse 21. There you see the, the words of verse 21. Even 
like it says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The phrase there, even as, means in the same way. Jesus is using his relationship with the Father as an illustration to help us understand something about our unity. Even as. The Father, listen, and Son are one, yet they're distinguishable, right? They're one in essence, but two in persons. The Father and the Son. And you can throw in God is one in essence and three in persons. There, there's a distinction between the persons of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but yet they're one. In the same way, our oneness in the body of Christ is similar in that we are one, yet we're distinguish, distinguishable, right? You can distinguish between all the people in here, right? But we're one. But we're distinguishable. And that's what he's pointing out here. And we, we're unified, but we're not uniformed. And often people get these things mixed up, that they're the same. I had a chance to watch uh, the Brazos uh, Wood Buccaneers uh, play a scrimmage on Friday night. And they all had the same colors of jerseys on. And they were playing for the same purpose, but they, you could also distinguish them. Why? They all had different numbers. And they were different sizes, and they did different things. Yet they were one in their purpose. And they, they share the common bond of being part of the Brazoswood Buccaneers. If you're an exporter fan here, I'm sorry. They crushed you. Okay, we'll move on. That was their purpose and they accomplished their purpose. All right. Uh, but see, those are related. Unity and uniformity aren't the same, but they are related. Some people insist that you be just like them in every as aspect of application of truth. This is where the confusion happens, all right? That every application of truth, however you apply it, someone else has to apply it just like that. If they believe that you should not cut, they should not cut their grass on Sunday, then you shouldn't cut your grass on Sunday either. And before you think, oh, those people, well, if you believe you shouldn't cut it, or you should cut it on Sunday, don't turn around and make sure that they can cut it on Sunday either. You see what I'm saying? It's not right or wrong. If that's the way someone applies this truth, here's what they're trying to apply. There's a, there's a truth called Sabbath rest. That God wants us to rest before the law. That happened in Genesis, before the fall. All right? And there's this principle that we apply, and we should apply in our life. We looked back, back a long time ago when we were in Genesis. Um, if you remember that, but those who are here. We talked about this principle that's there. How we, a, a person who decides they're not going to cut their grass on Sunday, as long as they do it with the right heart, they're just saying, this is the day I'm going to rest. That's fine, as long as they don't think they're going to please God and get God's going to love them more because they don't cut their grass on Sunday, they're fine. And someone who chooses to apply that principle of rest some other way, it's okay. But, but don't assume that this person ought to do that if they really love God. And, and, and what, what happens if, if someone uses their li liberty to go two-stepping? That's dancing for some of you, all right? And then they think, well, you should use your liberty that way. So let's go dancing. And you ought to go with us. And if you don't, you're, you're a legalist. If you don't go dancing. You can turn that around, right? We look at somebody who goes dancing, right? And say, oh, man, can you believe them? They're going two-stepping. Now, obviously, there's some principles here. And there's some kind of dancing that's wrong. All right? But there's freedom here. And we don't want to say that because I do or I don't do, someone else has to do and I don't do. How about this? What if someone puts their kids down at seven? 
the wrong thing would be to say is everyone has to put their kids down at 7, right? The person who puts their kid down at 8, are you kidding me? And here's the one that always gets me, all right? Now, you guys know this. is when your wife is gone like all day, and she's not going to get back before the kid's bedtime. And she says, hey, honey, you need to put them down between 7 and 7.30. Ladies, in case you didn't know this, okay, the guy, he, he is just whipped all day trying to watch this, this one little critter, all right? Running around and just sitting there, just hanging on, all right? And at 6.59 and 57 seconds, 58 seconds, 59, 67, oh, you're going to bed. Woo! All right, that's what they do. All right, just in case you know that. And is that ungodly? I don't know. All right, but, but to assume that we do everything the same, we apply, and the principle is your kid needs, a, it needs structure, it needs rest, your child does. There's a principle we apply there. And we shouldn't apply that for everyone else, right? And we could keep going on and on and on and on. And this kind of thought is actually detrimental to unity in the body of Christ. It does not bring unity. I love what Kent Hughes says here, and he says, in fact, the insistence that others be just like us is one of the most disunifying forces in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's be unified, but not uniformed. Uh, look, can you imagine how boring it would be if we were uniformed? If everybody did things just like me. I'm telling you, there's parts of my life that are just boring. All right? Just because of me, not because I'm boring family, a boring wife, you all know that. And there's probably parts of you that are just boring. But look, there's unity and diversity here, isn't there? And the unity he speaks about is not uniformity. And, and that's shown in the, in the illustration of the Father and the Son. The third characteristic of unity we see in Jesus' prayer is it shares a common glory. This unity shares a common glory. Look at verse 22. The glory which you get, have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Here Jesus says that all believers are recipients of his glory. Both in the sense that he reveals the Father's glory to us. We've seen that throughout John. That's one of his purposes to explain who God is, to reveal his glory, his character. And also, his glory resides in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is amazing. That in some sense, the glory of God resides in us. That's amazing. I... I, I I, I can't even fathom that, but it's true. Since God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in every believer, we share a common glory. Not only that he's revealed to us in understanding who God is, but he indwells us. Peter mentions this amazing fact when he writes in 2 Peter 1, 4. Look what he says. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, listen to this, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. We partake in some amazing way of the divine nature, the very nature of God, of his glory. The glory of God dwells in us. Where did the glory used to dwell? Or they, at least there's a symbol of the glory, right? In the tabernacle, in the temple, over the Ark of the Covenant. And yet when Jesus died, it said that the, the veil that kept people from experiencing the glory of God in this most intimate way was torn from top to bottom so that we might come into his presence. And then the Holy Spirit came so that he might come into us, come into our presence. We share a common glory. And that automatically brings unity at the core of our beings. The fourth characteristic of unity we see in Jesus' prayer is it shares a common destiny. Look at verse 24. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me and where I am, so they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays that whom you have given me, again, that's all those who believe, will be with me where I am, in the unveiled presence of God, who is Trinity. Why? Does he say? So that, so that, he prays this, that they would see his glory, so that they, he prays so that they may see his glory. He goes on to explain that glory. My glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. This points back to verse 5 of this chapter. Speaking of Jesus returning to the glory he had with the Father before the world was. Going back to this, this, this fellowship with the Father and in the presence of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together. That's where he is. And that's what this is speaking of. That, they, before the fa- that you love me before the foundation of the world. He's going back and saying that this is where I am and this is a glory I want them to see. Yes, there's a sense that we see the glory of God in the cross. We, we see the glory of God in creation. We even see the glory of God in, in other people. We, we see the glory of God in, in the rebirth of sinful people, those who are, as the song says, a wretch, and he makes them their treasure. Do we see the glory of God there? You bet we see the glory of God in those things. But that glory is still veiled. It's a glimpse of his glory. And Jesus doesn't pray that they would get a glimpse of his glory. He prays that they would be with him where he is so that they may see his glory. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, one day it will not be dim. It will not be veiled anymore. One day all those who are in Christ will be with him in, that, in, in, in splendor of the unveiled glory of God. In the fullness of his glory. That's what he's saying. That they would come in and be where I am and get to see and experience the complete unveiled glory of God. We can't even imagine, Mike, what that is. I think Isaiah and Isaiah 6 got a little bit more glimpse than most people. And go read it later in the beginning of Isaiah 6. Not right now, but let me just tell you what happens. He gets a glimpse of the glory of God. A glimpse of the glory of God. And what does he do? He falls down and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Actually, the angels are doing this. And he responds to this holy God in front of him. And he falls down and he says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And the word there is disintegrated. Integrated means this, right? Disintegrated means this. He's coming undone is what he says. Just at this glimpse of the glory of God. And there'll be one day that we'll stand in the fullness of the glory of God with the Lord Jesus Christ and we won't be coming undone. We'll be basking in the glory. And that's what he prays for us. I mean, who's in for that? I'm up for that. That's amazing. And that's what he says. It's a characteristic of this unity that we share a common destiny. Fifth characteristic of unity we see in Jesus' prayer is it shares a common intimate knowledge. Look at 25 through 26. O righteous Father, although the world has known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known. Here we see Jesus say that we know the Father because we know the Son. Because of our intimate relationship with the Son, we have this knowledge of, of the Father. He says, I've made your name known to them and will make it known. Jesus continually reveals God's character, his name, to his children. It says, we'll make it known. 
This is an ongoing thing that he promises. He's going to continue to, to unveil the person of God right before us. And this common knowledge we share is not just some intellectual knowledge. It's not some just facts about who God is. But instead, it's an intimate relationship with him. This knowing that goes on, we saw this earlier in John, is not just head knowledge. It's a knowing someone. When I say that I know someone is my friend, I know Gary Sanders is my friend. I really know Gary Sanders. We, we eat together, we talk together, we pray together. We pray for each other. There's a, there's a relationship here. And I've, I've shared this before, but I can tell you that I know Herschel Walker, who I think is the greatest college running back in the history of college football, okay? But all I know about Herschel Walker is I read his autobiography when I was in 11th grade. Do I know Herschel Walker? No. There's no relationship I have. And this knowledge that Jesus gives us is ongoing. I reveal and I have and I will continue to reveal and make known the Father. This is kind of the knowledge that we share. We share, listen to this, we share in the same relationship. The relationship with God. That's what we share together. It's a common thing that we have. This is why we can call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now in some churches, and church I grew up in, some people still do this, they'll say, Brother Jared, Sister Marty. And some people look at people like that, are they crazy? No, they're not. They actually get it. That we are brothers and sisters. And there's a relationship here that, that is spelled out all through the scripture that we have, and we have it in common. Well, this leads us to the six characters of unity seen in Jesus' prayer. It shares a common love. Notice the last part of verse 26. So that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Here is the purpose for which Jesus makes the Father known to us. Those who are in Christ, those who know Christ, share a common love. Notice that phrase there, the kind of love in which they share. He says, the love with which you love me may be in them. Look at that. What kind of love? The love, listen, the love with which you loved me. Let me say that again. What kind of love do we share? Jesus says, the love with which you loved me. I wonder what kind of love that is. Go back to verse 20, uh, um, 23 and look at the statement. It says, so that, here's a result, okay? Here's a, in, in a sense, a, a purpose of this unity, too. And we're going to see it more here in a second. But so that the world may know that you sent me, listen to this, and love them even as you have loved me. Look at that phrase. And love them even as you have loved me. Notice again the phrase, even as. It's to the same degree. That's what this word means. To the same degree. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see what he's praying here? We are loved to the same degree or just as the Father loves the Son. You know how much the Father loves you? He loves you as much as he loves the Son. That's exactly what this is saying. And that's hard to take. Who, me? Yeah, remember, God doesn't love us for who we are. He loves us for who he is. And he loves us to the same degree. And this is a thing I couldn't get out of my mind and my heart all week. In fact, if you're, you're someone who tweets or Twitters and you follow me on Twitter, I, I tweeted this, like on Tuesday, and I'm reading this, and I, and, I, and I see this, and I'm like, oh my goodness. I am overwhelmed by the fact that God the Father loves me to the same degree that he loves his son who is perfect, sinless, and deity. 
He loves me like that. And if you are in him this morning, listen to you. God the Father loves you as much as he loves his own son. And that's what the scripture says. And I know that makes us uncomfortable. But it shouldn't. It should overwhelm us. So if you do Twitter or tweet or talk to anybody about the things of God, you should say, can you believe this fact that God loves me like he does his own son? And I can never get over that. I hope I never get over it. I hope you never get over the fact that he loves you as much to the same degree as he loves the son. Jesus prayed this. That they would love, that know, they would know this love. This should mark us. This should impact us. It should change us. We are one or we are unified. We have a unity because the Father loves us to the same degree as he loves the Son. If the Father loves us in this way, how can we not help but love each other? How can we help but not love each other? Helen, you are loved by the Father in the same degree that he loves the Son. And that's who you are. How can I not love you? That's who you are. That's how you're loved. How can I not love a, a sister in Christ like that? And everyone on here who's a brother or sister in Christ. Well, John deals with this in his epistles. 1 John 4, 11. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, how much does he love us? As much as he loves his Son. We also ought to love one another. And then John later in that same chapter in 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So to say that we love God and he loves us and we don't love our brother and sister Christ is a crock. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't go together. It's crazy. His radical love for us is to lead to a radical love for each other. This love is characteristic of our unity. We're unified because of truth. Unity, not in uniformity. We share a common glory, a common get destiny, a common intimate knowledge. And in fact, the characteristic of love is the one that makes visible the other characteristics. And is in some way the defining characteristic of our unity that we love. And we love each other because we're loved by him. And this kind of unity, as seen in our radical love for each other, results in something. That brings us to the third major emphasis of Jesus' prayer, the result of unity. What does it result in? What does he say it will result in if this unity is true? Look at verse 21 and the phrase, so that the world may believe that you sent me. That so, that, so that is a result. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So that. When the unity or oneness of believers that Jesus prayed for is realized... It comes, as he says, to perfection and unity, to a maturity and unity in the lives, in our lives. It will be a radical love. And it will be a radical love that can only be explained by Jesus in us. It won't be explained by anything else. That's how radical this love is. It shows that this unity must be something that others can see. It's evident in our relationships. That the world may know. That the world may believe. So they're going to have to see something, it says. The result of unity is that many people in the world will be overwhelmed by his love as seen in our love for one another. That's the result of this unity, which is characterized mostly by this radical love. It results in many people, 
not all, but many people in this world being overwhelmed by the love that they see that we have for each other. Is it sometimes hard to love others? Let's be honest. It is. And we're a diverse group in here in many, many different ways. We're very diverse. And the world would say diversity separates. Alright, you just get away from each other, right? You don't, you don't hang out with the people that are all different than you, and especially you don't love them, you don't sacrifice for them. But the Word says, that's not like the church. The church comes together around our diversity and loves each other in spite of diversity. In spite of our weakness, in spite of our sin, we, 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 in spite of our sin, we, we come together and we love each other radically. Well, is the unity for which Jesus prayed evident in your life? Is the unity for which Jesus prayed evident in our church? The key is being overwhelmed and never getting over the truth we saw in verse 23. We are loved to the same degree as the Father loves the Son. The Father loves me. And if you're in His Son, He loves you to the same degree He loves His Son. Have I said that enough? Probably not. Probably not. And maybe that should have been my whole sermon. I just stand up here for 45 minutes and said that. And we should never get tired of that. Because it's that important. If we get this, if we really embrace that truth, it will manifest itself in unity displayed in radical love for one another. So the world may see his love and be drawn to him. And there's many ways we can do this. Many, many ways. One of those I want to encourage you. It's kind of hard to radically love someone you're never around. In fact, you can't because it takes action. To really love someone through thick and thin, through difficulty, through differences, through pain, through sin against each other. To really, you have to be with people. And, and as much as I love this and we need to keep doing this because the scripture tells us to do this, it's a wonderful thing. We come together on Sunday morning. That's important. We should do that. It's part of it. But there's no way that you can get to know everybody in here. We got a lot of people gone this morning. We have like 200 people part of our body, right? Men, men, women, and children, all right? That's what we have. There's no way you can get to know all those people. But if you get in smaller groups, which are called life groups here, you can get to know people. And you can begin to experience the radical love which Spot talked about in this. And you can display, listen to this, display for the world unity like he talks about here in this passage. You can't do it by yourself. So I want to encourage you to get in life groups. You can also do that at Grace University. You're going to bring around other people. You're going to be in a smaller class setting. You're going to get to know other people. You're going to have a chance to love those people as you get to know them. So I encourage you to participate in those things. Jared and I won't get paid one more thing because you participated in that. And I say that, me, honestly, it doesn't make us feel better. It's not going to change who we are. We're not going to get paid more. We're not going to get a star or evaluation. You did a better job, Brian or Jared. The elders aren't going to get a better star in heaven because you came to that. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to get the chance to experience and display unity in those th places. I just get that as a practical way to apply this. You wonder, we want to know how to apply it. That's one way you can do it. There's many other ways too. And it happens. And what I love about this church, I hear this almost all the time from people who visit our church and other people in our community. Your church sure is a loving church. And I love to hear that. I love to hear that. That's the way it should be. But you know, we keep, we keep growing in this, don't we? I know I do. Do you know his love this morning? Do you know it? Do you really know his love?
If you're here this morning, some of this may have seemed like, this, is, this, is, this means nothing to me. This is like, you know, the guy and Charlie Brown. That's what I'm hearing. And, 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 and for a long time in my life, that's what I heard too. And many of you here know what I'm talking about. That's what you heard. And the reason being is because you don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't understand his word, and it means nothing. So here's my challenge to you. Know this, that God created the world for his glory, that he might be glorified. And man, from the beginning, has walked away, all of us included, all of us, and said, you know, God, I don't want you. I don't need you. And we say we do, but when it really comes down to it, we find out we don't. Because it says all have fallen short of the glory of God. And here's what God did. He loved the people in this world so much that he sent his son to die in your place. To take the penalty that you deserve for your sin of not glorifying him. To die in your place so that you might know his love. And be changed by his love. So what he asks you to do is just quit trusting in yourself. Quit trusting yourself to make, you right with him, make yourself right with him and turn and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who's made it right with God. And be changed and know his love. That's what he's asking you to do, to repent and believe. If you're in that place this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. If you'd like to talk about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. I know many other people would here too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for us. He prayed for the church. And Lord, I pray that we would see. It will happen, Lord, but we would not be unwilling participants. We would be willing participants in this called unity. And we would pursue unity. We would pursue this radical love that's prayed for for us here. And that people would see your amazing love for us and for them, for all who will believe. Lord, help us to leave here to begin to apply these things. In Jesus' name, amen.